morning. I'm Nate, one of the elders here, and it is uh, my privilege to bring the word this morning. I get to do that every once in a while, once a quarter on the, on the dot, it seems like. And so this morning, we are actually going to be taking a bit of a detour from our series in Exodus. And I hate to say this, it's because I was given the third commandment and I didn't want to do it. <laughs> so that sounds really bad from somebody who's about to preach to you, but uh, such as it is. So the passage that we're going to look at this morning is Matthew 22, 34 through 40. And I'm actually going to read a little bit more because the, the context here is really interesting and important. So I'm going to read a little bit up to uh, verse 34, and then you can join with me. I would encourage you to uh, turn on a Bible or open one, and we will get to it. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity, that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us, the first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrections, whose life will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And now our passage. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with the question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you enter into our hearts and our minds and our souls this morning, that you would enlighten these words of yours, that you would empower us to accomplish and to fulfill these commandments, that we would love you with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So this last week, uh, we were sitting around the kitchen table, uh, which actually lately doesn't happen very often. But anyway, we had a game out, and uh, I was kind of tired, and they got it out. And it's the matchstick game. Have any of you played matchsticks? Basically what it is, it's a horrible device to embarrass parents, but it's uh, a box of sticks that then you're kind of given some instructions on how to, uh, usually it's a drawing of a shape, and then by moving a few of these matchsticks, you're supposed to create another shape. And there's always some kind of a restriction on the number of moves you can make. So if you've ever been to, um, uh, what's that restaurant called? Cracker Barrel, thank you. They have some of these little games, and they're uh, horribly annoying. So anyway, I got trapped, and the kids said, Here, they, here's the instructions, and it was some kind of square with some sticks coming off of it. And okay, there's one square in the middle, you need to make three. And so I sat there and stared at it for probably 15 minutes. Every once in a while, I'd move a stick, and it's like, no, that's not gonna work. And I'm an engineer, so this is horribly embarrassing, right? I'd move another stick, no, that's not going to work. And it was, my kids are mocking me. They are, it was so, and all the while, right, at regular intervals, they would say, oh, they would figure it out. They would all rejoice. One of them would figure it out. Then the next one would figure it out. And I'm still just staring at this thing, embarrassed. And, and then my son is like, oh, it was so easy. And it was just like, oh, gosh. And finally, I just said, okay, just show me how to do it. Move two sticks and there's three squares. <clears throat> but isn't that so much like life? We get so focused on trying to accomplish something and we're given this problem, a puzzle, uh, in this game of life and we, we're trying to figure it out, right? And we rejoice when we do and we mourn and lament when we don't. And what we're going to see in our passage this morning is here are these group of people religious leaders who knew the, the law and the Bible better than anybody and completely missed the point and missed the very presence of the creator of the universe and the author of this scripture that they held so dear. So, what, why did I pick this passage? It's really because it, it provides us this framework by which then we can move into the rest of this series in Exodus and maybe better understand the Ten Commandments. But also, we want to get to the heart of the matter. What was the point of having a night around the table with my family? It wasn't to solve puzzles. It was to enjoy their presence. And so we need to stay focused. And this passage hopefully will help us do that. So let's just spend a little bit more time. We'll flesh this out. So what do we know? as we look at this passage. The Pharisees and Sadducees did not like each other. They were both kind of vying for power, and at this point in the game, the Sadducees, they controlled the, um, the high priest position, the priesthood, and they held a majority in what's called the Sanhedrin, which was basically the council of the Jews that oversaw, um, that oversaw the Jews. And... Uh, that there were a lot of differences between them, and Jesus points to one of them. Uh, one is that the Sadducees did not believe in the afterlife or in any kind of spiritual realm. The supernatural to them was just not important. 
which is kind of strange when you, uh, when you read the Bible, uh, that they could miss that. The Pharisees did. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the sovereignty of God and in his role in our life. Um, the Sadducees, actually, it's interesting, they welcomed Roman rule. I think as we've learned about um, uh, over the years about the Sadducees and Pharisees, the idea is that the Jews all rejected Roman rule. That's not actually the case. The Sadducees, because they were kind of power hungry and had a lot of power, they enjoyed a lot of that power because of their friendship and their welcoming of the Roman, uh, the Roman occupation. The Pharisees uh, did not. <laughs> they, uh, in a lot of cases, resist. They were an insurgency, so to speak, and uh, got into some trouble because of that at certain times. And so here are these religious groups now that are uh, at, at, at odds with one another in some pretty fundamental ways, but where they were in agreement is they hated Jesus. He was really stirring up trouble for them. And, uh, and this was not the first set of interactions that they had with him <laughs> where there was conflict and Jesus calling him out. It had happened a lot. And they were sick of it. They wanted him dead. And so in this passage that we just went through, we, what they're trying to do is to get him to blaspheme. They want him to make a huge mistake and blaspheme so that they can put him to death. That's ultimately what they want to do. So hopefully that provides a little bit more context around what we're trying to get at this morning. Both of them knew uh, the, the 613 laws that they had uh, compiled and understood to be present in the scripture, but they forgot what was at the core of those laws. They were too focused on the puzzle and the game and they missed the greater point. Yeah, sorry. I have a lot of scripture that I want to read, and I'm not sure that I'm going to do it because uh, <laughs> it'll end up being a lot. But I at least want to read this. One of the, uh, one of the, um, gosh, I am losing my words this morning. Jesus chastises later in the book of Matthew, the Pharisees, uh, for this missing of the point. In 23, verses 25 through 26, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they were full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside will also be clean. So as we dig into this greatest commandment that Jesus gives, this is the understanding that, um, that we have. Is it comes out in this interaction with these people who are claiming to know it. So let's look at this first command. The Sadducees had failed, and the Pharisees had a window of opportunity to step in and kind of be the hero. And they sent forth one of their lawyers to try to take care of business. And Jesus addresses this in such a way that they could not argue with it. So what does he do? Well, he goes back to one of their fundamental, uh, one of the fundamental aspects of their faith, which is called the Shema. And the Shema is a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, or sorry, verses 4 and 5. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So in that time, Jews were to keep this prayer or this uh, passage with them all the time. They wore it on them. They would nail it to the doorposts of their houses so that they would not forget what the most important things are. The Shema. And when Jesus pulled this out and used this card, they had nothing to say because it was obvious that this is where they should be. So what does it say? Well, first, it's a command. It's an imperative. And they asked for that command. They asked for what the greatest command is. And one of my favorite passages in Psalm 37, which I think highlights this very well, is that it's a command to love the Lord in the imperative. So Psalm 37 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Imperative. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Imperative. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. It means find your greatest satisfaction in the source of all things and walk humbly and joyfully in obedience. Now, that last word we don't really like, but the command is not to do this just when it feels good. Feelings and actions go together. Sometimes the feelings go first, sometimes the actions go first. And I, I think the difficulty that we have is we want all of our actions to be sincere. And so we use our lack of feeling to drive our action when it comes, and what Jesus was saying, when it comes to loving the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But this is where it becomes the rubber meets the road, right? When we talk about loving the Lord and they're given this imperative, sincerity comes through practice. And there are ways in which we can practice that love of the Lord before that feeling really takes hold and becomes the driver. In the Ten Commandments, we see that uh, the first four commandments are centered around this love of God. And what they really give us is a, is a small window into what the, the how of this practice is. How do we come to love the Lord? And he says, I, I'm your only God. Don't try to create some other image or represent me in a way that is not fitting. Uh, don't take my name in vain and keep the Sabbath. Now, it's kind of a short list if you put it in, in those terms. But maybe this will help us, and I'm going to expand on that a little bit. How do we do this? What practices do we engage in to actually come to a greater love of the Lord? Well, in Presbyterianism, we love to say and talk about the ordinary means of grace. Now, what are those things? So we would say that's the word, the sacraments, and prayer. And so we'll kind of, uh, we'll tease these out a little bit. So I, the way I want to describe these is in terms of remembrance and worship and prayer. So this call to remember is kind of learn, remember, learn, and teach, right? So the Shema was something that they learned and absorbed and taught their whole life 
they'd pray it two, three, or more times a day, and it was just ingrained in them. And so this remembrance and teaching around the Word of God is what gives us that. It's our commitment to fill our minds and our hearts with the truth. And not just doctrines, but the story and the person of Jesus and of God. It's easy to get sidetracked on doctrines and our systematic theology. Those things are important. But it's easy to lose sight of the God of love and the creator of the universe if we focus too much on those things. To remember is to remember what he's done and to learn about that, and then to teach it. In worship, if we tease out the, uh, the fourth commandment, worship is a part of the Sabbath. Sabbath is the idea of rest, that we're setting apart a day. We're setting apart a day to rest, to stop working, but the, with the command to keep it holy. Right? And so in this command that Jesus gives to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, this is part of it. If he is a God who is powerful enough, and if we remember back in the previous chapters of Exodus that we've been in, what was the event that was very fresh in their minds that God accomplished on their behalf? Freedom from slavery. (laughs) Now they grumbled a little bit uh, after that and got hungry, but still, it should have been very fresh in their minds, and that reminder should have led them into a love for the Lord. And shouldn't that also for us? As we remember, we are drawn into worship. And then prayer. He hears us. He's near. It's so easy to think because we can't physically see him and touch him that he's not present. Or that we pray in order just to mumble along. Or we pray to do what we're supposed to do. Now if we come back to sincerity and action, sometimes going through the motions is good. If all you did was recite the Lord's Prayer a couple times a day, you would grow. It will work on you. It has an incredible power to do that. But it's with this understanding that he hears, that he has done great work in order to be with us. All right, so that's love for God. Let's talk about love for neighbor. So Jesus refinishes his response to the Pharisees after kind of, uh, in a nice way, clubbing them over the head with their own scripture, or their their own greatest commandment. And he goes to another passage. So this passage is from Leviticus 19. And Leviticus 19 is, um, well, I'm going to read it, and it it will speak for itself. So this is verse 9 through 18. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rod him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall be partial to the poor or defer to the great. You shall not 
be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. And here it is, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. They would have known this passage very well. <laughs> and here we have a, a, another kind of retelling of the Ten Commandments, right? So in each of these, he's getting back to the heart of things and fleshing out what actually does this mean. And this is what it means, right? These commands are how, oh, and how to love your neighbor and how not to hate your neighbor. It's <laughs> kind of twofold. And when looking at this passage, they would have nitpicked this, and they did. This is where they got lost. Instead of focusing on the last statement, they focused on the previous 15, or whatever it was, and missed the point. Jesus was focused on the core and was trying to bring them back to that. And there's a second bit that Jesus actually leaves out, and if we come back to it, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. And I wish you would have said that. <laughs> uh, they might have put him to death right there, um, if he would have. But I just feel like that's a little interesting tidbit. So how? How do we love our neighbor as ourself? There are two questions that come up when we think about this problem. Where does the motivation come from? Right? It's the same problem that we looked at at loving God. We want our motivations to be pure. I want to help the homeless because I love them. Okay? When is that going to happen? <laughs> when are you going to do that? What's your plan? We want our hearts always to be fully engaged before we do anything. And sometimes it just takes stepping out and doing something. In Luke 10, there's another exchange that gets at the second question. And this one I am going to read. Luke 10, this is verses 25 through 29. And behold, a lawyer stood up in front of him to test him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Sounds great, right? He gets it. He knows. Verse 29, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? <laughs> and we remember this story, and Jesus then goes into the, the story, or the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so isn't this so much, again, like what we do? We are so desperate to justify ourselves and our inaction or our failures to love our neighbors that we will start to question who is our neighbor. It's easy for me sitting in my comfortable Riverton suburban home to forget that there are camps downtown of homeless folks and poor folks who desperately need Jesus. It's easy for me to forget that. And it's easy for me to say, well, they're not my neighbor. 
They, they're not in my neighborhood. How can I serve them, right? But I'm also not asking the question, who's poor near me? And not just who is poor and destitute, but poor in spirit, right? And if we start to look to our relationships and our neighbors and look for poverty, both of spirit, of soul, of mind, we will find that there is plenty to do and that this justification, self-justification, falls apart pretty fast. So again, where does this love of neighbor come from? And we're going to look at a passage from 1 John. This is verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we, are to, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Where does the love of neighbor comes from? It comes from our love for God and God's love for us. So in many ways, it points us back to the first command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That the motivation and the power to love our neighbor comes out of developing a love for God through obedience to his commands to do so. At the end of this week in which this is happening, which is the last week of his life, he's in Jerusalem. This comes after his time in Bethany where he lay, uh, raises Lazarus from the dead. It comes after the triumphal entry and he is marching slowly and steadily to the cross. And that is where this story and his interaction with the Pharisees happens. He would go to the cross as he passed through incredible torture and insult and betrayal. But this was the way. This was the path before him, the way to free his people from slavery. To obey the will of his father, to do what he had to do. In order to break the power of sin and death and make a way for us to live in new life. This is what he was accomplished. This is what he was focused on. Love of God and love of neighbor. He was, in a sense, going through the motions, too. If we look at some of the ways that it's worded, the way that he carried out his mission is that he was obeying. That as we see also in his prayer in the garden, Lord, would you take this cup from me? But not my will, but your will be done. There was a commitment to this process, to this act um, of, of redemption. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus had the right goal. 
he obeyed in joy. He did what we could not do and obey with joy and love in his heart. He did what he did for the joy that was set before him where he could live with us in glory, in newness of life, in the power of the resurrection. Putting to death sin, decay, pain, sorrow. And he invites us to this. This is the good news. And it's so easy to get lost. It's so easy to get lost in the details of atonement and salvation and justification and all these fancy words like propitiation that we like to talk about. We're trying to move matchsticks around and fix a simple problem by making it way more complicated than it needs to be. Jesus calls us into the resurrection and to a spirit-empowered life. And it's this truth that ought to lead us to a love for God, which will then yield a love for our neighbor. Make this your prayer. That you come to understand this good news. That it sit deeply in your hearts. And that we not get lost in the minutia of a religious system. But come to the creator of the universe and the lover of your souls. We've given... We've been given so much more than just a game to play. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for your work. We thank you for that deep love that you have for your people. We ask that you would continue to call them to yourself and that you would put us in the middle. That you would use us through our obedience and our willingness to reach the lost, to strengthen them and encourage them in their faith as they learn to love you and to love their neighbors. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.